Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to my YouTube channel. My name is John Campia, and this is a companion video. What are companion videos? Well, I'm awfully glad that you asked. See, every day on the John Campia Show, Monday through Friday, we take the second half of the show to take your live comments and questions. However, we usually don't have enough time to get through all the live comments and questions that get sent in, but I want to make sure you guys don't have to wait too long to get those questions answered since you sent them in with your tips to support the channel, which we are very grateful for. So we gather them up and we address them here on companion videos. And I don't know what it is. Something was in the air, but the last couple of days, we've had a lot of questions come in. And I have in front of me a 48-page document. We have 48 pages of questions that we need to get caught up on. So let's start doing it and let's dive right into it. We're going to start off things here with Matt McClure, uh, Matt McClure, a little Simpsons reference there. Uh, John and Rob, who's not here today. I just saw Chaos Walking last night in theaters. It was actually good. You know what? I totally even missed that it came out. There's been so much drama and everything surrounding this movie. I totally missed that it even came out. Anyway, um, it was actually good. Really? Have you seen it? No, I have not yet, but I should. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I don't think hashtag release the Lyman cut will trend, but it was all right. And a shame we probably won't see a sequel. Yeah, I mean, listen, what they were able to turn this movie into... I don't know, but I do know like all the hype about how terrible it was before they did all the reshoots. What I mean, literally, we've heard some people say, oh, the movie's unwatchable. Usually that was never said. It was actually said that this movie was unwatchable and they had to like redo a ton of the movie just to get it out. So I am curious to see it, though, because I like everybody involved. I like Daisy Ridley. I like Tom Holland. I like uh, Lyman. I mean. It's something I want to see, if not for anything else other than morbid curiosity. But I'm glad you saw it, and I'm glad you liked it, man. All right, next up. Better usernames available rights. Theory. Bucky's list is so he can redeem himself for all the bad he's done, thus uh, righting wrongs, even though he was brainwashed. Uh, Bucky has counseling and basically says he has no purpose. Newly redeemed Bucky will be Captain America. Falcon is uh, Red Wing Herring. I Here's the problem with that. It is one thing, I think, for the government to say, we're going to give you know, Bucky a pardon because he did number one. Yeah. The, the, the background of he was taken against his will, he was brainwashed. And also the fact that, Hey, guess what? That saving 3 billion lives battle that happened during Endgame, He was one of the reasons that battle was won. And we have 3 billion of our loved ones back. I'm sure all of that played into it. I'm sure all of that played into it. But the reality is, even though he has been pardoned, can he's got how did uh, how did black widow put it he's got too much red in his ledger to don the the a and the stars and stripes and be captain america i think in the majority of the comic books it doesn't matter in the mcu i think they've just said it that he can't be captain america you know, Sam could, even though I don't think anybody else should be Captain America, that should be only for Steve Trevor, in my opinion. Or I keep saying Steve Trevor, Steve Rogers. Um, wrong, wrong comic book universe, John. Um, but I, I mean, it's just there's just too much background there for him to be Captain America. But hey, man, you never know. This is the MCU. They might do something crazy like that. All right. Next up, we got Eddie Burton who writes. 
So what exactly is the story with Michael Keaton? That's a good question. Uh, coming back as Batman. Curious if you had any details. I feel like Keaton is in it, but he wants to keep it a surprise. So what's? I, I'll be honest with you. I have just seen some headlines. I, quite frankly, don't know the ins and outs of what's going on. I just started reading in some of the bigger sites that um, it is no longer a for sure thing that Michael Keaton is going to be appearing in it. Now, look. We all know Michael Keaton was never going to be a big role in the movie. Like, we knew he wasn't going to get, like, 40 minutes of screen time in the movie, right? Like, we always knew that. But I thought it was pretty much a sure thing that he was at least going to appear. And then I started seeing these things about now he's a little bit noncommittal. Um, I mean, obviously, the Flash shooting date has been moved so many times that maybe it conflicts. I mean, I simply don't know. I'm waiting to find out more information myself. So let's keep our eyes uh, on this developing situation, shall we? All right, next up, we got Preston the Kryptonian who writes, Hey, John, so by the time you read this, it will be the fifth anniversary of Batman versus Superman. Another reason to rewatch the movie, uh, followed by a viewing of Zack Snyder's Justice League. I I mean, I just remember how much crap I, I would take from people because I quite enjoyed Batman versus Superman. I still do. To this day, I, I quite enjoy Batman versus Superman. I got a lot of crap. I still get a lot of crap for liking Man of Steel, but be that as it may, um, it is uh, it is weird. I still love the fight, too. I think the fight between Batman and Superman made the whole movie worth it. I really did. I, I thought it was great. Anyway, uh, next one. Noobs, one of two, writes, with a theatrical window officially shrinking because it's gone from 90 days down to 45 days now. Uh, can we pretty decisively say that the top domestic and top worldwide box office records will never be broken as a movie just won't be in theaters long enough to do so anymore? Um, two of two, FYI, Avatar ran 34 weeks and Endgame 20 weeks. Now a theater will likely carry a movie for only eight to 10 weeks at most. Here's the thing, noobs. I, I get what you're saying and what you're saying, it, it, it makes sense. Can we definitively say now that like a $3 billion movie can never happen now because it used to be that the theatrical window was 90 days and now it's 45 days. Now, if you don't know what we're talking about when we say theatrical window, theatrical window is the terminology used for the amount of time a movie has to exclusively play in theaters before it's released in any form of home video, be it physical media, streaming, uh, whatever. So that's the theatrical window. And it looks like a couple of studios have now signed on to deals to shrink that theatrical window to 45 days. And they've made those deals with the theaters. It looks like that's going to be the new standard, 45 days. Does that then mean with half the theatrical window that any movie ever having the chance to catch Endgame or Avatar is now gone? And I'm going to say something you may find a little bit surprising. I still think the record can be beaten. It's going to be a while. I mean, how long did Avatar have the record? Like almost a decade before Endgame came along and then Avatar took the record back. I mean, it's going to be a while. But the reality is also that movie-going trends have been changing a lot over the last 10 years. The opening weekend of a box office for a film has become more and more and more important. It used to be that by like the end of week one, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fabricating some numbers here just to illustrate what I know is a, 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 some, some real facts, but just, I can't remember the specific number. So just for the sake of the discussion, 
it used to be that like at the end of week one, that, you know, 30% of people who are going to see that movie or like 20%, 20% of people who were going to see that movie in theaters will have seen it by the end of week one in theaters. By like 2019, that 20% went to like 40%. The opening weekend, it just, the trend happened as more and more movies started to coming, coming out. Because remember, every year, the number of wide release films just keeps going up. As more and more films would come out and more and more movies getting their big debuts and opening weekends, we started to see a shift in movie going habits that people were starting to see movies earlier and earlier and earlier. Not everybody, but generally speaking, more and more people were seeing movies earlier and earlier in their run. Going back to what you were just saying, for an example, like Avatar 34 weeks, Endgame made that movie in 20 weeks. Because in the time between when Avatar came out and when Endgame came out, that trend has been happening where more and more people who are going to see a movie in theaters see it earlier and earlier and earlier. And the longer somebody waits to see it in theaters, the less likely they'll actually go to see it. With that trend being there, I, I would argue it is still possible that even with a 45-day theatrical window, that the right movie at the right time could still beat the all-time record being held by Avatar or Endgame, whichever one is holding it at the time. So, yeah, and, and honestly, I think that's why this isn't as... I remember when I started at AMC almost 10 years ago, maybe it was about 10 years ago now, there was this big fight going on between the theaters and studios. The studios wanted to shrink the theatrical window from 90 days. The theaters were really holding on to it. But it's different now. Now that more and more people go out earlier and earlier to the movies, it's easier for the theaters to say, okay, we we concede to shrinking the theatrical window because of the movie-going habits and the trends. So I still think it's possible. I'm not saying it absolutely will happen. I'm not saying it'll happen anytime soon. But yeah, with those trends, I think it is still possible. Anyway, good question, man. Excellent question. Uh, next up, Mark from the Future writes, I just watched Ryan Reynolds post about the new release date for Free Guy. It was hilarious. Can you think of anyone who's a walking marketing team like Ryan Reynolds? Dude can sell a movie to a blind man. It all comes down. You're right. Nobody. I don't even think Dwayne The Rock Johnson can sell a movie like Ryan Reynolds can. I'm not saying Ryan Reynolds has the same charisma or is as big of a star as, as Dwayne The Rock Johnson. But I'm saying... His pure showmanship and ability to sell a movie he's in is honestly, I think, second to none. There, I don't think anybody does it better, and that includes Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I don't think, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson is great at it, by the way. Uh, that's why Red Notice with Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Ryan Reynolds, they're gonna pop that movie like crazy. But yeah, he is absolutely amazing in it, Mark from the Future. He is absolutely amazing in it. All right, next up, or added, I should say. Miguel Zian writes, Hey, John and co-host, no co-host today. Random question. What are some films that maybe are too vague, maybe too pretentious or too subjective? Every film is subjective. Uh, that you all didn't like, maybe got bored watching it or found it just too pretentious. Inherent vice and annihilation for me. Thanks. I mean, you know what? Here, I'm going to say something 
a little weird. And no offense to you, Miguel, not at all, because a lot of people do this. I've probably done it. You've done it. I, I, so this is a commentary and a criticism about all of us. I find even using the word pretentious is kind of pretentious in and of itself. You know what I mean? I mean, look, there have been lots of movies that that obviously come that we see every year that don't work for us and we get bored of it or whatever. And, and maybe one of the things that that turns us off about the movies, maybe to us, it strikes us as a little self-important and things like that. Maybe. But I find I find a lot of times. When we as people, and I'll include myself in this, when we use the term pretentious, we are ourselves being a little bit pretentious. So I'll just say, Miguel, I mean, I get again, Annihilation, I didn't love. It's It was a movie that to me took itself a little too seriously. I get it was very serious subject matter. Um, so that's all good, but it didn't quite work for me. I thought Inherent Vice was wildly entertaining. I, I really liked Inherent Vice. So it, it's all subjective. It's all subjective. Um, but no, I can't think of a film that I watched that didn't work for me strictly on the basis that I thought it was pretentious. Um, and like I said, I, I find a lot of times when any of us use the phrase, we are ourselves actually being pretentious, but anyway, that's just that. All right. Thanks for sending that in Miguel. Next up, Mike Brandy writes, Hey John, sorry to bring up Wonder Woman 84 again, but I watched Justice League Snyder Cut a second time. Why did Patty and co shy away from the warrior aspect of Diana in Wonder Woman 84? No sword or shield, but Linda Carter influence. Uh, grew up watching reruns on FX in the 90s, but like Krypton, it had its time. Well, I think, you know, we did get a lot of, obviously with the World War I stuff and everything, we did get a lot of that in the first Wonder Woman movie. I think Patty Jenkins just wanted to explore a different side of Wonder Woman to show a different dimension to her. Now, look, you all know I didn't like Wonder Woman 84. I mean, I love the first Wonder Woman movie. It's it's wonderful. The second one, no, not so much. I, I ended up, the, the more I thought about it, the more I watched it, because I did watch it a couple of times because apparently I hate myself. Um, I liked it less and less. It just, it made so little sense and all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't from... Wonder Woman needs to be this complete savage Amazonian warrior that's just going around cutting off heads. That, that no, the the pro plot problems would have been the same there. I just think probably Patty Jenkins, and I'm speculating here, Patty Jenkins probably thought we covered a lot of that in Diana's personality in the first film. We want to explore some other things in this film. The hope, the the optimism, the the positivity or, or whatever to show multiple dimensions, I'm guessing. And look, at the end of the day, that's not what made Wonder Woman 84 a bad film. There were a lot of problems with that film. That wasn't one necessarily of them. But I do have a feeling with the fact that Patty wants to do like an Amazonian thing. She's got her plans for Wonder Woman 3. I do think we're going to see a lot more of that warrior Wonder Woman at the same time. Maybe we won't, but my guess is that we will. So that's my guess on that, Mike. All right, next up. We got Ray Riez who writes, uh, hi, John and Rob. Rob's not here. Funny though. Uh, do you think every movie will make $1 billion just because people want to go out and see movies because we haven't seen movies in, um, we haven't seen movies in almost a year and a half. Uh, you and Rob make my day, uh, every day. Keep up the good work. Well, no, no, un unfortunately, no, that's not the case. Now, here's the thing. I really believe there is a bigger hunger in people to get back to the movies than some people think. 
But at the same time, I'm cognizant of the fact that there is also a good chunk of the movie-going audience that is still hesitant. And, and I think that's totally reasonable, and it's totally understandable. Like, I think it's great that we have limited capacity in theaters right now, that they have the safety protocols in place that they do. I think that's appropriate, and I think it's great. But at the same time, you know, when movie theaters were opened up back here in Los Angeles— Ann and I were very excited to go back, and so we jumped on our AMC app to look up a movie playing at the AMC Burbank 16 so we can go to our favorite theater and watch something, and everything was sold out. It was all sold out. It was all sold out. And then I remember I got lucky. Like I went in and bought my tickets for Godzilla vs. Kong uh, opening day IMAX very quickly, but I checked it again the next day. All the Godzilla vs. Kong screenings were sold out. Now, I'm sure, you know, this is the Los Angeles area. Movie going is more of a way of life here than other places. I'm sure there are many other places where maybe that wasn't the case. Um, but no, do I think every movie is going to suddenly magically be a big hit? No. Ryan the Last Dragon, which is a, you know, potentially very big, not a billion dollar film, but a potentially very big film for Disney. It made $71 million worldwide. Which is the reason Wonder Woman bumped two more months and is going to be both in theaters and on Disney Plus Premium Access for $30. So, uh, no, we're not going to see records getting broken anytime soon. But, you know, once we get into 2022, I can see some records starting to get broken again. Maybe not like the all-time records, but I can see some records getting broken again. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Next up, we've got Lee who writes, Today is my 21st birthday. This question came in yesterday. Today is my 21st birthday, John. Great to celebrate with you and all the fellow film fans. Lee, happy birthday to you, my friend. Happy belated birthday to you, my friend. I hope you had a magnificent day, and I wish nothing but a magnificent year of triumphant victory and glory ahead of you, my friend. Have a great one, and once again, happy belated birthday, my friend. All right, next up. Uh, Alpha O writes, I think one of three. I think you downplay Zemo, Baron Zemo, in Civil War. True, the Accords issue exists, but unless Zemo sets up Buck for the UN, he stays hidden, Cap doesn't break the Accords to help him, and Panther doesn't come after him. Airport never happens, and if it did by another device, um, it might not go as far. Why ideologically Cap opposes the Accords, why he doesn't back down at that moment is he believes Zemo is a bigger threat uh, he has to stop. Lastly, it's Zemo showing the tape to Tony that breaks the team. Uh, if you say these main beats still happen without Zemo from just the Accords, you also have to say say how. Saying he isn't Saying he isn't needed is like saying Loki also isn't in Avengers because Thanos would have still sent the Shatari and someone else would have led them. You, you keep forgetting, though, that Loki already was a big key player because of the first Thor movie, but we'll overlook that for now. Uh, sent the Shatari and someone else would have led them, but that's my opinion. I respect yours. And hey, listen, Alpha, this is a, an ongoing discussion. Now, I love Captain America Civil War. I love that movie. I think it's great. That being said, I one of the things that I did not think was all that great was Zemo in the movie. I thought at most he was a – what's the best word I, I can find here for this? He was a meddling – like a meddlesome bystander, if you will. Like he just did a little this and a little that. Now, like you pointed out and you yourself agree, the – 
mixture and the setting was already there for a huge confrontation. The accords were going to cause a problem. Cap thinks one way very strongly philosophically. The other team, other members of his team feel very differently the other way. Did Zemo do a little this and a little that? Sure. Does that make him a great villain? I don't think so. Like you said, I think a lot of this could have just evolved on its own just from the situation the way it was because of the previous events. Did he actually become a spark to cause certain things of the events of Civil War? Absolutely. But did those things constitute him being a great villain? I really don't think so. Now, I'm excited to see an excellent actor like Daniel Bruhl back as Baron Zemo to see him get a little more substantive stuff to do in the movie. But that's just that. Now, many, many of my fellow film fans disagree. Like many of my fellow film fans really love Zemo in Civil War. And I totally respect that. That's great. I just, for me, I thought that was one of the weaker points of the movie. I thought they could have constructed a villain that was a little bit more... Mm, let's say intentional in actually steering the events and causing the events of civil war. They went in a different direction. They went with a villain that was a little bit more subtle and Hey, it worked. The movie's a masterpiece. It's, it's fabulous. But yeah, I always thought Zemo was well, because of those things was a little bit of a weaker thing. But again, that's just me. I know a lot of my fellow film fans have a different opinion. That's awesome. That's just always kind of been mine anyway. All right, let's move on here. Next up. We've got uh, my, a mischievous gremlin who writes, Hey, John, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you, mischievous gremlin. I know it's not a popular opinion, but I love the movie Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I love Scott Pilgrim. I think most people I know love Scott Pilgrim versus the world. So yeah, well, there is a chance for people to see this movie in theaters again. Edgar Wright announced, I've heard this Edgar Knight and Edgar Wright announced that he has teamed up with AMC uh, theaters and they will re-release the movie in Dolby movie type of theaters on April 30th only in Dolby movie type of theaters. So that'll be like AMC Prime, Dolby Cinemas at AMC Prime and things like that. I'm really looking forward to going back to the theaters to see this movie again. What are your thoughts? Love it. Absolutely love it. I love Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I absolutely adore it. Now, here's the funny thing. So, the year they released Scott Pilgrim versus the world, I was at Comic-Con and I don't know. Let me, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find this. Hold on a second. Uh, uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to find this. So let me see if I can. So that year at Comic-Con, the year that they were going to be releasing uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world uh, there, I was doing my annual um, my annual masters of the web party and, uh, Edgar Wright was on my panel for the masters of the web, uh, panel that year at Comic-Con and at our annual party, uh, I, this was the first one we did with AMC and we were giving out, uh, the first ever award for the AMC film fanatic awards. We only did this for a couple of years, but we were giving out the film fanatic awards and Edgar Wright came. And he brought the whole cast of Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Uh, this is me and Edgar Wright as I was uh, presenting him with the uh, Film Fanatics Award. And it was for, you know, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. They were getting ready to debut it at Comic-Con. Um, so this, that was a really great night. Let me see if I can get this. I'm not sure I can get this in here. Let me see if I can get this uh, in here. One second. I'm not totally sure that I can. But at any rate... Uh, Oh, this is, this is also, this is from the same night. This picture is from the same night. 
uh, that we were there. That was me, Edgar, and uh, one of the vice presidents of AMC, who I didn't actually get along. You know, I think she was a really, really nice person. We just didn't get along professionally. It's just unfortunate, one of those things. Anyway, uh, and then at the same party, uh, let me see. So Brandon Routh, who is, of course in Scott Pilgrim versus the world. So he was there and he and I were hanging out. And for whatever, this, I, this picture is hilarious because for whatever reason, this picture looks like I'm trying to give Brandon Routh instructions on how to give a blowjob. I, I don't know why, what was I saying at this particular moment that my hand was like that and my mouth was like that. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely sure what was going through my head at that time or what it was I was trying to say to Brandon. But anyway, so anyway, that's all to say that I, yes, my friend, have a massive, massive love and a particular attachment to Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I think the idea of getting to see it again on the big screen is fantastic. I love that they're doing this and I will be there when they do it so I could see it on the big screen again. Absolutely. All right, let's keep moving on here. Amen. Osman writes, Ola, John, I don't quite understand your crit your critique of Manhunter's neutral stance in Zack Snyder's Justice League. He isn't human. He's Martian. Most likely had his home world invaded and destroyed. It makes sense that he'd have lost hope and would have let the humans fight. Uh, 202. Uh, for their own world. He can easily just leave and settle somewhere else. But by the end, he says to Batman, I've realized that I have a stake in this world. He kind of embodies Cl Clark's lack of identity and Aquaman's neutral posi position before joining. I see. I, I disagree. I disagree. The, it came across a little bit weird because like this whole thing about if you're going to propose that Martian Manhunter is just kind of just keeping himself at a distance. Then explain to me him being heavily involved by being a general in the military. He's already heavily, heavily, heavily involved with the world. He's already heavily, heavily, heavily involved with the world's conflicts. It's not like, it's not like if, if they had portrayed that um, he was living as a hermit up in the mountains somewhere just trying to ignore the problems of the world. Maybe there's an argument to be made there, but the, he was already clearly invested in the world and in the troubles of the world and in the conflicts of the world. And for him to be a being of great power and seeing all the destruction that was happening, happening in Batman versus Superman, and then seeing all the destruction going on and the potential of the world ending in Zack Snyder's Justice League to sit back and not be involved at all, not even bother to help, and then come along at the end saying, hey, now that all the hard parts that I don't know, that just struck me as very odd. And again, I what you're saying is very consistent with the traditional understanding of Martian Manhunter. And again, that would apply, I think, if they've shown that in this Zack Snyder Snyderverse, Manhunter was living alone as a hermit separate from everyone else in the world, I would get it. But the fact that he's already so invested in the world, he's so integrated into the world, he's even part of the army and the military in this world, it makes it just seem a little questionable. Again, look, at the end of the day, it's not a big deal. And I don't want to act like it is. I think it's a little bit funny, but it's not a big deal. It really isn't. But that's that's why that doesn't quite... It, that's why it strikes me as a little odd, to be honest with you. That's why it strikes me as a little bit odd. All right, next up, uh, we've got Cameron Nelson who writes, 
Hello, John. Uh, I've seen three movies so far since the Burbank 16 has opened up. Nice. I haven't been able to be to the Burbank 16 yet. Nomadland, which is brilliant. Chaos Walking, which I haven't watched yet. And Ryan the Last Dragon, which is really good. It feels so good to be back at the movies. I can't wait for Kong and long live theaters. Keep up the great work. I'm so glad, Cameron, you've been able to go there. I've been able to go to the uh, Tyler, the AMC Tyler Galleria couple times now but i'm really looking forward to taking a trip into burbank and going to my favorite theater burbank 16 uh especially you know once kong and mortal kombat are out like i'm gonna be eating those things up so good on you cameron all right next up james argento writes i think part of the reason black widow got moved to day and date is due to continental europe being slower to vaccinate than asia u.s and uk and the fact that Florence Pugh is going to be in Hawkeye, which comes out in late 2021. I I don't know, James. Like, honestly, I really do feel like it's it's a simpler answer. To that. I mean, there, you could be right. There could that could come into play. Um, and I'm not disputing that to me. It's a little more on the surface. It's just that they have already already waited so long. They know putting it out in theaters right now when Ryan the Last Dragon just made $71 million worldwide, which is not enough. They know they can't put it out now. They know they can't push it off too much further anyway because it's already over a year late and they've got other you know projects that are supposed to happen in continuity with what goes on in Black Widow. And that seems to be the more thing there. But you're right. It's, it's probably a, a problem with more than one cause, right? And it's probably a lot of factors, not just one or two that went into it. And you're probably right. Maybe that was one of the factors that could very well have been one of the factors. Anyway, good observation, James. Next up, an anonymous viewer writes, I've heard that the success of Pixar's soul was one of the reasons Disney is now moving Luca straight to Disney plus. Where did you hear that without premier access? How on earth would they know this? Uh, they're not making any money. Um, well, first of all, I, I would be curious to say, Who's saying that's why that you heard it from? That's the first thing I would I would ask. Um, you got to remember, Disney Plus is still to them a long term commitment and a long term goal, and the idea of putting out offering premium original content without the premier access to make that still valuable. See, I, I feel like this. If they're, I think part of the reason why they, they're putting Luca out just on regular thing without charging the extra is probably to counter the sourness in people's mouths that, wait a minute, we sign up for Disney Plus, we pay you regularly the monthly fee, and on top of that, you want us to pay you $30? For some of this coming out. So I feel like part of it. And again, nobody at Disney told me this. This is just me speculating. I feel like a part of the decision to put Luca straight on there was to counter the what's the word I'm looking for. I feel like it's a sign of good faith. If, if, if that makes sense, I feel like it's a bit of a sign of good faith to the Disney plus subscribers saying, yeah, see, yeah, maybe we're doing this, make you pay a premium price for Cruella of $30, but see, we're putting on free stuff too. So I don't know. Maybe that's a part of it. Maybe it's not. We'll find out. All right. Next up, uh, Ryan writes, Hey John, uh, yikes. My girlfriend just spoke up with me. Congratulations. 
I'm sorry. Is, is this an is this a congratulations situation or I'm sorry situation? I'm not sure. Uh, thanks for the company. Uh, tough during COVID. Hey man, listen. Other fish in the sea. There is a world of filthy out there just waiting for you to explore, my friend. And I'm glad the show can be here to be with you along the journey. All right, next up. Uh, Written Flows writes, one of three. Hey, John, I've been watching your content since sneaking and doing so in high school computer lab all the way through college. And now I'm an electrical engineer and I sneak and watch in my cubicle at work. LOL. I've always been amazed how many people write in both like even when I was back in the movie blog days, AMC, whatever to today, how many people write to me and say they watch the show at work. I love it. Uh, anyway, uh, I sneak and watch in my cubicle at work, LOL. And due to your constant encouragement uh, to join in the conversation, I, I've, I have also now started my own channel for film reviews. Good on you. Excellent. I think every film fan should get involved in doing a little blog or podcast or YouTube channel, whatever. Anyway, all of that is to preface my top five films of all time for your thoughts, as I know they're unconventional. And would like to know your thoughts on any of them if you've if you've seen them. In no particular order. The Illusionist. The Illusionist. That's the one with Edward Norton Jr., which came out around the same time. I believe it came out around the same time as The Prestige, right? At the same time. And it got totally overshadowed by Pre Prestige. Now, Grant, look, I think The Prestige was the better film. But The Illusionist, it, it's... Uh, and, oh, Justin Timberlake's wife. I'm forgetting her name. But it was... Ed Norton Jr. and Justin Timberlake. Stories. And I like the film very much. I prefer Prestige, but I like it very much. Um, uh, oh, and you mentioned The Prestige next. Love The Prestige. I didn't love the ending of Prestige. Didn't love the ending, but I do love the movie overall. Uh, Citizen Kane is, is obviously one of the most popular films of all time. Cinema Paradismo uh, and Boys in the Hood. Man, I was young when I first saw Boys in the Hood. Like, that was totally foreign to me. But yeah, I love Boys in the Hood. But anyway, yeah, that illusionist in The Prestige... It's kind of like when Volcano and Dante's Peak, you know, were coming out or Armageddon and whatever the Morgan Freeman one was called. I forget the name of that one where Morgan Freeman was the president, another giant asteroid movie coming to destroy the world. Um, but The Illusionist and Prestige kind of look like one of those two. They're actually two very different films. The Illusionist and The Prestige are two very, very different films, but kind of on the surface, it looked like one of those situations too. Anyway, that is unconventional, but that's the great thing about our movie lists. They're always different from other people's, and I think yours is great. All right, next up. Ready Teddy Seti writes, Hey, John, I don't often disagree with you, but well, we should. I mean, Phil, we all have different opinions on things. We should disagree a lot. Anyway, I don't often disagree with you, but there's something you say often that I disagree with. Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman did not underperform. Oh, they absolutely did. Uh, they both made a healthy profit. That's that's actually not necessarily true, particularly Man of Steel. Let's just let's just talk about this for a second. Man of Steel was one of the at the time, in like 2000 when they were making it in 2013 or something like that. But at the time, Man of Steel was one of the most expensive films ever in history to be made. Not the most expensive, but it was right up there. Like it was around like 200 and if I remember right, it's like $220 million or something like that. Now, seven years ago, that was huge. I mean, even today that's considered very, very big, but like at the time that was massive. It ended up making about, let's say six and change. I can't remember the exact number, like 650, some, something along those lines, about $650 million. Okay. Let's break it down. At $220 million production costs, they dropped $130 million on marketing. So now we're at $350 million. 
right? $350 million. Over here, the movie made, for argument's sake, let's say $650 million. Well, from that $650 million, you have to minus one third that the theaters keep. So you're taking off about 200 and let's say 220 for argument's sake, just 220 for argument's sake. So now you're left with $430 million, 350 to make and market, 430. Okay, so it made about an $80 million profit. That's good. That's not bad. That's good. It's not great. It's not a healthy profit, but it's okay. But I mean, with a movie called Superman in an age when comic book movies were becoming now the biggest box office hit in the world, that was an underperformer. It, it, it was an underperformer. And you remember, to me, it's one of the greatest comic book films of all time. I only have one thing in my, you can't see it right now. I only have one piece of movie, uh, movie stuff in that's in camera shot in my office. Now I got a bunch of pops over there, many, many, but in camera shot in my office, when I have this other camera turned on, when you see the side shot of me, the only thing you see is, is uh, Henry Cavill Superman. I love this movie, but make no mistake. It did underperform. It did underperform. Anyway, um, they both made a healthy profit, which is not necessarily true. And comparing them to MCU performance around that time is unfair. Uh, no, it's actually completely fair. It was a brand new franchise and should have been judged that way. That is not true at all. And box office wise, they were on par with Iron Man 1, <sighs> Thor 1, and uh, better than Hulk. Warner Brothers wanted critic approval when they should have taken their cues from Michael Bay, screw the critics. Actually, that's not correct either. Because if you look at Marvel's films, they did both. They got big... Um, uh, cri big critic approval, huge critic approval, and they did big box office. It, it's a misnomer to say you have to choose one or the other. It's not an either or. You can do both. Get Make great movies that the critics love, that the audience loves, and can be massively successful. Anyway, let's keep moving on here. Uh, Ready, Teddy. Oh, that was the, the third part, I guess. Okay, so let, let's, let me address this here for a second. It is a common misnomer. What, what I find sometimes that specifically DC fans, some DC fans try to do, is to say that movies like Man of Steel, which I think is one of the best ever made, it shouldn't be compared to other superhero movies that were coming out at the time. It should have been compared to like Iron Man 1 or to Captain America the First Avenger. And that is not true. That's, that's a false excuse. You see, because when Iron Man came out and when Captain America First Avenger came out, the comic book genre was not yet the biggest, most dominant genre at the box office in the world. Those movies came out and over the course of a few years made the comic book genre the most dominant force in the box office in the world. It just, it just made it that way. So they did all the heavy lifting and laid all the groundwork to make the comic book movie genre the number one genre in the world. It was in that environment that Man of Steel came out. Now, I believe Man of Steel came out in 2014. Let, let me just check that for a second. Sorry, that's 2013. 2013, Man of Steel came out. So in 2013, Man of Steel came out when the Marvel films had established that the comic book genre was the biggest financial juggernaut in the world. When Iron Man 1 came out, 
it didn't have the benefit of that. They had to make it the most dominant thing in the world. Man of Steel came out once it was established. The comic book genre is the number one box office genre in the world. And just two months, maybe three months, two or three months before Man of Steel came out, Iron Man 3 came out, which I like Iron Man 3, but it's not awesome. It's not great. I think it's good, but it's not great. Iron Man 3 came out and made $1.1, billion at the box office. A Superman movie should absolutely do much better than an Iron Man movie. Superman is Superman. He is the granddaddy of all superheroes. And by far the most record, especially a number of years ago, things may have changed over the past seven or eight years, but especially at the time, the far more recognizable character. For a Superman movie to come out and only do half of the business that an Iron Man 3 did is problematic. It roughly did the same amount of business that Thor 2 The Dark World did. And Thor 2 The Dark World is pretty much universally agreed upon as the worst MCU movie. Like that's, I think that's the worst one they've ever made. And and it made roughly the same amount of, of man as Thor. Now today, yeah, well, Thor is a huge thing, but back at the time, Thor was not such a huge thing. So no, you cannot compare. You, you, I, I completely disagree with the assessment that when comparing that first batch of DCEU movies, because it's not like Superman had never had movies before. Superman is a worldwide global phenomenon. He's had television shows and movies and all that kind of stuff. Everybody knows who it is. And it was coming out in an era when the comic book genre was now made the most popular in the world. And you had Iron Man 3 making $1.2 billion at the box office. And so I... That is why I personally, even though, I mean, ask me which movie is better, Iron Man 3 or Man of Steel. Uh, yeah, obviously, Man of Steel by a mile. But um, you can't make excuses for it underperforming. This whole thing about you should be comparing it to films that came out like years earlier when the comic book genre wasn't as successful. No, no, that's, that's not what you should be. In my opinion, that's not when you should be comparing it to. It came out in different circumstances than the original MCU films did. It came out in the era when everybody was going to see uh, these movies. And it came out, you know, in a time when, you know, Superman was still a much more better known name than Iron Man was. And so, um, yeah, I, I I don't agree that these things and, and these, um, um, that, that that becomes an excuse. But anyway... That's just my opinion. There's nothing definitively saying I am absolutely correct about that. That's just my point of view and my opinion and how I view the information. You look at it a little bit differently, and it's good that we have a difference of opinion because that means we get to have a conversation about it. So thanks for sharing your point of view on that, Ready Teddy Teddy. I appreciate that. All right, next up. Never lose your nerd rights. Hey, John. Just wanted to clear up something I heard you say about Batman the Dark Knight. Oh, here we go. Uh, that I think is incorrect. The Joker gave the wrong addresses because he knew Batman would go after Rachel. And he even told Gordon he was uh, in that scene. All right. So let's talk about this for a second and only for a second. So Never Lose Your Nerd is writing in something that I literally. Now, I've gotten a number of people writing in to tell me why I'm right. 
but I've had at least double the amount of people, at least double the amount of people writing in to tell me why they think I'm wrong about this. So I'm going to address this this one time, because like I said, we have had like 48 pages of questions to go through um, and probably a good four or five of those pages are just about this one topic and everybody's saying the exact same thing. So for all of you who sent in the questions, basically saying the exact same thing that never you lose your nerd just did. I'm just going to address this the one time to address all of it together to save us about 40 or 45 minutes of screen time, just repeating ourselves. So it, it, this is where this comes up a couple of days ago, uh, something I can't remember exactly how it came about, but a question about the dark Knight came up and we were just talking about it. And, you know, then somehow, some way the topic came up where, you know, a bunch of people think that Batman meant to save Rachel. Uh, and I kind of thought he meant to save, he meant to save um, uh, Two-Face or Harvey Dent. And it was just kind of a, a brief little thing, inconsequential, whatever. But, oh my God, a number of people got very up in arms about it. And I don't mean that badly. I mean, people got very passionate about that. And so I got a number of people writing in saying, you know, some people agree with me, but a lot of people disagreeing with me saying, John, 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 no, 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 no. He meant to save Rachel. So what Never Lose Your Nerd and a whole bunch of other people have written in uh, is basically this, that, and, and they're absolutely correct in pointing this out, that, you know, the Joker gave the addresses when Batman was leaving, he said he was going after Rachel. Now, of course, he ends up saving Harvey. So there is the assumption, there's one of two assumptions that you can make. You can either make the assumption that Joker misled him and he thought he was going to rescue Rachel and ended up going to the, the one that he didn't intend to. So you can make that assumption or you can make the assumption that he, after leaving and after saying that to Gordon, he changed his mind and thought the city needs Harvey Dent. I'm going to go save Harvey Dent. These are the two assumptions you can make. Because the movie doesn't explicitly say which of those two presumptions is true. If you just look at what happens. Now, now, first of all, even before I state my opinion on this again, let me be very, very, very clear about this. I really don't care. I don't think this issue is important to the movie. I don't think this, we're talking about a, um, a movie that is now what? 13 years old, 13 year old movie. And. Whichever of those two assumptions you make, it really doesn't change the outcome or your perception of the movie. And it's totally not important. And honestly, I don't care. If Christopher Nolan were to call me tomorrow and say, Campia, just so you know, um, the people saying that he meant to save Rachel, they were right. I would go, oh, okay. And I, re I really wouldn't care. I don't, I don't really care. I just gave an answer to a question that somebody asked me and it's become kind of a big deal. So I don't really care. This is not a, a hill I'm willing to die on, nor should anybody. It's an incon... It, it's, it's almost as important of a question as asking, what was Bane's favorite ice cream flavor in The Dark Knight Rises? It's completely not important to me. This is not an important question, so I don't really care. But because I respect you, my viewers, and you're asking the questions and bring it up, I will simply state what I think and why I think it. But ultimately, I don't care. Like I said Christopher Nolan could call me tomorrow and say I'm wrong, and it might be like, cool, I don't care. It's either way. So in deciding which of the two assumptions you want to buy into, the assumption that, um, uh, that he meant 
to actually go to Rachel and not end up at Harvey or that he changed his mind and did intend to show up at Harvey will really depend on which side of the explosion you pay more attention to. Cause here, here in the movies, the explosion, right? Prior to the explosion, we have him rushing out the door and him saying to Gordon, I'm going after Rachel. After the explosion, we have this scene between Alfred and Batman where the conversation doesn't at all sound like a conversation like he regretted uh, that he got tricked and ended up getting tricked into saving Harvey. That conversation doesn't sound like that at all. The conversation after the explosion explicitly sound i mean i shouldn't say explicitly because i mean they said it word for word but to me pretty clearly sounds like uh, he doesn't have any regret that his his priority was the hero that gotham needs is dent and i got his face half blown off i didn't get there in time to save him completely you know so if you pay more attention to what happens before the explosion, you're going to go with the assumption that he got tricked. If you pay more attention to the events after the explosion, particularly the conversation between Bruce and, and Alfred, I think you're going to buy more into the assumption that he changed his mind. So that's how I saw it. Because to me, the entire scene and the conversation between Alfred and Bruce after the explosion if he had intended to go after Rachel, that conversation made no sense at all. Like it made zero sense. He does not say the things he should be saying if he tried to go after Rachel. He does not say the things he should be saying if he didn't intend to go after Harvey. Like that entire conversation makes no sense unless he had decided to go after Harvey Dent. But again, I get it. I get why people think he meant to go after Rachel because of what happened before the explosion. I hope some of you and some of you have written into me, you do get why I kind of look at it other way because of that. But honestly, at the end of the day, I don't care. It can be that one. It can be this one. Don't care. It's not important. It's not important to the movie. It's not important to what I think about the movie. It's completely inconsequential as which flavor of ice cream was Bane's favorite. It, it doesn't matter to me. And I don't think anybody's crazy for thinking he was going after Rachel and got tricked because if you look at what happened in the scene before the explosion, it makes sense why you would think that. I hope that once you look at the Alfred and Bruce conversation, you go, yeah, that sounds like the things a guy who was going after Harvey on purpose would say. I hope you can see that from that way too. So anyway, that's just it. I don't want to talk about it anymore because it's just not important enough. And I am honestly surprised how many people wrote in the exact same thing. I was really, really surprised by it. So anyway, there you go. I've given my answer on that. Done with it now, clear and free. So now let's move on with other questions. Anyway, thank you, Never Lose Your Nerd, for writing that in. All right, let's keep going now. Uh, next up, uh, Dr. Kanaga writes, do you agree that if Warner Brothers had originally released this version of the Justice League film, they would they could have made it a two-parter? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know because unlike... I don't, maybe you guys can come up with, with a scenario here, but unlike say like Lord of the Rings, where the differing chapters had very clear, uh, delineation points between them, where each of the films by design, cause they came from three different books, each of the films felt like a complete film. I don't know 
if there was ever a point, because I don't think Zack Snyder ever intended it like this, and maybe he he did have it in the back of his mind, I don't know. But thinking about the HBO version of Justice League, I can't think of a natural breakpoint that still would have made it feel like a complete movie. You know, Infinity War was a complete movie. Endgame was a complete movie. You know, uh, Fellowship of the Ring was a complete movie. Two Towers was a complete movie. Lord, uh, um, um, uh, Return of the King is a complete movie. I can't think of a breakpoint in Justice League that would have made it not just feel like they just cut the movie in half. And it's not really its own complete film. So I'm going to, for now, I'm going to say, no, I don't think they could have made it a two-parter. Not without, I think, pissing off a lot of the audience and making it feel very, very awkward. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I think it would have had, they would have had to have edited it down to about three hours and 15 minutes, maximum three hours and 30, and then just release it as one proper film. Because I feel like it's assembled as one movie and one story. So that's my guess. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's my guess of that, doc, Dr. Canago. Thanks for writing that in. All right, next up. Underwhelming husband rights. Don't we all feel that way? Uh, hey, John, multiple people I know watched Wonder Woman 84 opening weekend only because it released on Christmas and families were all at home looking for something to watch. Do you think the Snyder Cut could have put up the same numbers if it released on Christmas? No. And I'll tell you why. Because everybody who was actually looking forward to watching Justice League, I, I don't personally know, and I can only speak from my own experience. I don't personally know anybody that was looking forward to Snyder Cut that didn't watch it within 24 hours of it coming out. Like every single... Now, again, I'm only speaking from my experience, all right? I'm only speaking from my experience and the people I know in my circles. But every single, without exception, person that I personally know who was actually looking forward to watching Zack Snyder's Justice League... They all watch it within the first 24 hours. There was, there was no waiting. People who were actually wanting to see it watch it pretty quick. And certainly within 72 hours. Certainly within the first three days. I don't think that would have changed um, at all if it was out over Christmas. I think everybody who was looking forward to it watched it. Everybody who was looking forward to it watched it. I mean, obviously that's hyperbole, not every single human, but you know, generally speaking, um, I don't know of anybody who was like, man, I cannot wait to see Snyder cut. And then four days after it came out, nope, still haven't watched it. Like I, again, I'm only speaking from my own personal experience. Your experience may be different. So no, I don't think it really, I really don't think it would have made any sort of a substantial difference. I don't, and we'll never know. We'll never, I, I could be very wrong about that, but that's my, uh, that's my guess on that. Okay. Next up. Um, Gabby writes, Hey, John and Rob, Rob's not here right now. Recently, I rewatched the nice guys. I love that movie so much. And every time I watch it, I like it more and more. I don't understand why it underperformed at the box office. I would have loved seeing what this becoming a franchise or a TV series. What are your thoughts? The nice guys to me, Gabby is the poster child movie of the hypocrisy of us film fans. You know, you know the you know how it goes, right? The moment a sequel or a remake of something is announced, you get people who like to sound like they know what they're doing. Oh, why Hollywood doesn't know how to do anything original anymore? 
Look how classy I am criticizing that Hollywood's not doing anything original anymore. When in reality, more original film gets produced today than at any other time in Hollywood history. But the other reality is this. And, and the nice guys is kind of the, the representation of this. It's the poster child for this. Hollywood puts out tons of original films. Tons. More today than in any other time in history. These people don't go to watch them. Oh, some they do, some. But you take a movie like The Nice Guys, which was a completely original, wildly entertaining, big stars, huge talented people involved. Shane Black did a just a terrific job with that movie. And nobody went to go see it. I can't remember the exact numbers, but let me just pull this up here. So uh, The Nice Guys box office. Uh, let's see. It was, it was disappointing to say the least. The nice guys, which came out in 2016, it made a grand total of $62 million, $62 million. That movie lost money because it cost, I mean, it wasn't a super expensive movie to make. Uh, definitely not a super expensive movie to make, but it did cost them $50 million to make. So $50 million plus marketing, it only made about 60 minus the one third. So this is a movie that probably lost 15 to $20 million, probably 15 to $20 million. And this movie is fantastic. This movie is utterly fantastic. It's exciting. It's got good mystery to it. It's funny. Again, wildly entertaining. Two of my favorite performers in the world, Russell Crowe. Uh, Ryan Gosling. It was just magnificent and nobody went to go see it. This movie represents, it's not, it's certainly not the only one. I'm just saying it's the representation. It's the poster child. I was saying where some movie fans always go, oh, Hollywood doesn't make anything original anymore. Well, yeah, they do. They make tons and you just don't go watch it. And so I am agreement with you. I love this movie. I wish it made like it needed to make triple at the box office, which it, which it done. They set it up perfectly to be a franchise. They totally set this thing up to be a franchise, but I mean, it lost a bunch of money. You can't do another film with it after that. And it's really a shame because it did not get the support that it so richly deserved to get. Anyway, I'm glad you brought it up, Gabby. Thanks for mentioning that. Okay. Next up, uh, Calvin, uh, Severo panel writes. I just always assumed Hawkeye's wife used the landline to call him. I don't know. Uh, I don't know you, but I saved my house number with my mother's name. Makes sense for me. I, I mean, that's possible. It's possible. But didn't it also have, didn't it have her picture on it? I may not be remembering this right. I may not. So this stems from a conversation we had the other day on the show about, I always found it a little bit weird that two seconds after Hulk snaps everybody, Hawkeye looks at his phone and it's his wife calling him. I said, so for five years, he kept paying her phone bill and kept her phone plugged in and charged. And, you know, like all this kind of stuff. Really? I mean, a bunch of people would joke about that after Endgame came out too. Um, could it have been the home line? Maybe, maybe, but I think her picture was on it too. Maybe I'm wrong. So, Hey, that could be an explanation. That could be an explanation that maybe he had the home line with her specific name listed on it instead of just saying home or something like that. We never did that in my family. Uh, it always just said Campias or something like that or whatever, but that could be an option. 
you could you could have a point there, Calvin. You absolutely could. All right, next up. Chase H. from Denver writes, one of two. Hey, John, new subscriber. Thank you so much for being a subscriber, Chase, and big fan of the show. I'm a big Marvel slash Star Wars fan and have always been disappointed by DC, but not Snyder Cut. I was never somebody asking for this movie to be made, but wow, it stands up with uh, with every Avengers movie in my mind. Uh, I've never been a big Snyder fan, but watching this, I have no interest in any other projects DC has unless it's pursuing all the storylines left off on this movie. I don't think I'm alone among non-diehard Snyder fans. Well, I mean, look, let me be honest with you, Chase. That's a very narrow point of view. That's a very narrow-minded way of looking at things. And we talk about this all the time with different movies and whatever to say, now, I don't want anything unless it stars this guy in it. That's that's pretty narrow-minded. I don't want to see any movie unless this guy is directing it. Well, that's... That's pretty narrow minded. As a matter of fact, I remember when they were, when they first announced that they were going to do The Hobbit. And originally it was supposed to be two films. Why they stretched it out into three, I'll never know. That was a terrible mistake. But it was going to be directed by Guillermo del Toro. Now, a lot of people love Guillermo del Toro, but there was still a lot of people of, if Peter Jackson's not directing it, I'm not interested. It's like, yes, Peter Jackson did an immortal job on Lord of the Rings. But that's not to say other directors couldn't also possibly do a really great job. It's really narrow-minded to say, I'm not interested unless Peter Jackson's directing. Well, guess what? Scheduling conflicts happened. Guillermo del Toro dropped out. And Peter Jackson did end up directing it. And a lot of us were wishing maybe Guillermo del Toro did because the Hobbit films, while I still like them, they turned out nowhere near as good as the original Lord of the Rings films, right? And the reality is that as much as I think the very best DCU movie, not DC, but DCEU movie ever made is a Zack Snyder film in Man of Steel. The fact of the matter is the most successful films done in the DCU, like the three most successful films, were not done by Zack Snyder. And really had nothing to do with his storylines. I mean, you even look at like Aquaman, which was the first DC movie to make a billion dollars. Not Batman versus Superman, but Aquaman made over a billion dollars and it, it had one very quick line of reference to anything that happened in the rest of the, uh, in the rest of the DCU. The one line, if you blinked, you missed it. Mara says to Aquaman the first time they encounter each other in the movie. And she says, you know, you battle Steppenwolf. That's it. That's the only reference to anything else in the DCU. That is the only reference everything else was a total it might as well have been a complete standalone movie universe on its own joker had nothing to do nothing to do with the extended universe or anything it was its own isolated thing made a billion dollars won academy awards blah blah all that is just to say that while Zack snyder in my estimation did some really really good things in the dcu the notion that you should only now ever pay attention to anything to in the DCU if he's doing it, I think is fairly narrow-minded. It's a very narrow-minded myopic approach, much along the same ways of people saying, I'm only interested in anything Lord of the Rings if Peter Jackson's doing it. Well, look how that turned out. I'm just saying, keep an open mind. I mean, hey, maybe they'll do something as great as Joker. Maybe they'll make something another billion-dollar film as big as Aquaman. Maybe it'll be, you know, not as wonderful, even though I really like Suicide Squad, like 
the original the David Ayer Suicide Squad. I really like the I th- I was very entertained by the David Ayer Suicide Squad. I know a lot of people don't like it. And it's not one of the better DCU films, DCU films. So I don't know. So maybe they turn out not so good. But keep an open mind. Don't decide I'm not gonna watch this if this guy's if you know. I'm just try to stay a little bit more open-minded. That's the only, that's my only thing that I would encourage uh, you on that. Anyway, Chase, thank you for being a subscriber, man. Thanks for sharing your point of view and thank you for contributing your question as well, man. I appreciate that. All right. Next up, never lose your nerd rights. Hey, John, there's something I wanted to bring up because I know you like to get on people about abbreviations and sometimes it's hard to know what people are saying. I think the main reason people do or have to do it is because there is a character limit. Oh, I know that. So what Never Lose Your Nerd is talking about is a lot of times a question will come in and I'll say, hey, John, when TLXMMT7 uh, was was doing that one thing with the computer, you never noticed that ZL175QM was also a part of MNT and also could have been in QXZA. And I'm like, I'll be looking at it and saying, I, so now... I have people watching the show and their time is being wasted because I'm just sitting there going, uh, let me read that again. Uh, I, I, I don't know what we're talking about. And it just slows the show down and all that kind of stuff. So I often will say to people, guys, please don't use abbreviations when writing in questions because, you know, I, if I don't know instantly, because remember, I'm taking about 100 questions a show, Right. And so my mind is constantly just jumping from one topic to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, trying to give some kind of intelligible answer to questions, stuff like that. And so when I run into abbreviations, if my mind is just a little bit clogged up at them and I'm like, I, I don't know where we're talking about. I'm sorry. And then I have to just move on from the question. I feel bad because somebody sent in a question and now they're not going to get an answer because I don't know what it is they're talking about. Now, I think you're totally right. Never lose your nerd that sometimes some people do that because of a character limit. What I would say to that is open notepad first, write out your question and just figure out a way to word your question that you get it in within the character limit without using abbreviations, you know, you know, like sometimes, you know, if like right now, a big topic of conversation around is Zack Snyder's Justice League. So yeah, you can put ZSJL right now. But oftentimes we get people writing in with like these really obscure abbreviations about a movie that was like eight years old or something. I'm like, I, I, I just, I don't know what we're talking about. You know what I mean? So my suggestion would be uh, draft out the message you want to send in first. Make sure you can word it in such a way that you don't have to use abbreviations and still get the point of your question across and then send in again. It doesn't, it's not like it super bothers me. It's just that you run the risk that I'm not going to know immediately what it is you're talking about. And then I'll just have to move on from your question without actually answering it. Then you feel bad and I feel bad and everybody feels bad. And I just want to avoid those situations. That's all. But you're absolutely right in your assessment on that. Never lose your nerd. You're you're absolutely accurate about that. All right. Next up, Uh, we've got uh, Calvin writes in again, John, they finally did it. Superman finally made me cry. No, not in the Snyder cut. That effing train station scene in Superman and Lois. I haven't seen the newest episode yet. Uh, that train station scene in Superman and Lois made me pause and calm, call my mom. Love the show, John. All the best in the world for you. Well, thank you so much for that, Calvin. And I have not seen it. I'll tell you what, though, guys. In case you haven't watched the show in a couple of weeks, like my show in the last couple of weeks, I cannot believe that I am a fan of this Superman and Lois show. 
I've hated this super, what they did with this Superman in uh, the CW universe. They turned him into a giant jobber. Uh, they made him a laughing stock. They humiliated him every chance that they would get. No, Supergirl, you're the hero that the world needs. The world doesn't need me, Supergirl. It needs you. And constantly getting beat up everywhere he turns. I've hated it because I'm a big Superman guy. But this show, I'm one of my how many episodes are they? Is this the fifth episode? Let's let's for some just to assume. Let's assume this is the fifth fifth episode that's out. And um, I'm four episodes in, or maybe I'm three. I can't remember. And I'm really enjoying this show so far. I am really enjoying it. And I never thought that would have been possible. Now, I haven't seen this latest episode with the train station scene, but I will watch it in the next couple of days. I've been really backed up with some stuff, but I'll watch it in the next couple of days, Calvin. And yeah, man, you and me both, dude. I, I cannot believe how much I'm enjoying this show. Shocked. I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say I'm shocked. Absolutely shocked how much I like it. All right, next up. Anonymous viewer writes, is there a movie that won Best Picture that you didn't like over one you really did? Mine is The Shape of Water. I usually love Del Toro movies, but I didn't care for it. And I loved A Star is Born. and was, was upset it didn't win. What's your favorite uh, of Yes To? What's your favorite of Yes To? I'm not sure what that means. But uh, if it makes you feel anybody anonymous, even if A Shape of Water didn't win, A Star is Born wasn't going to win either. J just so you know. I think a couple of films would have had to have dropped out at consideration for Stars Born. To win. And by the way, I loved a Stars Born too. I liked it very much too. I can honestly say I can't think of a single Best Picture winner that I didn't at least like. Seriously, I I can't think of a single Best Picture winner that I didn't at least really like, really quite like. Now, many times a film is one that wasn't the film I picked to win, but I've definitely, yeah, I can't think of a single best picture winner that I haven't really quite liked. Some people will often point to crash. I actually really enjoyed crash. I thought that crash is great. Some people will point to Shakespeare in love. I thought Shakespeare in love was fantastic. I really did. Um, some people will point to the shape of water. I was completely engrossed to shape of water. I, I love that movie. I thought it was fantastic. So it's a really good question, but yeah, my answer is I honestly can't think of a single best picture winner that I didn't at the very least quite enjoy. Again, many times, not the film I would have picked to win, but I can't think of one that I flat out didn't like. It's an interesting question though, Anonymous. What about you guys? Do you guys have a best picture winner that not only did you not think it should have won, that you just flat out didn't even like the movie? I'd be curious to know your thoughts. Jump down to the comment section below and let me know what you guys think. All right, let's get back over to it here. Uh, Calvin also writes, John, I know you love the not impressed scene. It's, it's, it's to me, other than Pa Kent saying you are my son in Man of Steel, the not impressed scene is my favorite scene in all of the DCEU. Like no other scene got other than Pa Kent saying you are my son, which got a huge emotional response out of me. No other scene came close to getting the emotional response out of me that not impressed it. Anyway, uh, but I really don't. In both versions of the Superman, uh, of the movie, Superman never met Steppenwolf before that scene. So what if he was wrong and Supes should be, should be impressed? What a stupid way to die. <laughs> what a stupid way to die uh, would it be? Cocky much? You know what? Okay, you raise a good point. I'm not going to argue with that. That is true. Uh, that is That is true. But, huh, I don't know. I mean, if he saw 
if he was able to see from a distance as he was approaching everybody else fighting him and you know aquaman doing pretty well against steppenwolf wonder woman definitely holding her own against steppenwolf then he probably knew this dude can't hurt me this dude can't hurt me he's not even kryptonian i mean that doomsday monster he was kryptonian okay he's on my level General Zod, Kryptonian, he's on my level. This fool, this fool ain't, look, Aquaman is knocking him across the room. Aquaman's great, by the way. But Aquaman's knocking him across the room. I took out Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Cyborg, and Flash all fighting together. I headbutted Wonder Woman into the concrete. I outspeeded the Flash. I sent Aquaman flying, all this kind of stuff. I can take this fool. I'm the Superman, but you're right. You're right. A little bit cocky. Yep. Yeah, I'll give you that. And how how funny would it have been if Superman's like, ha ha, I'm going to stand here in front of your shot. And the axe like lopped off his arm. And it's like, and then he's like pulling a Monty Python, the, the Black Knight. It's just a flesh wound. I mean, that would have been pretty funny. But no, he just knew. He knew I'm the Superman. This guy's not even Kryptonian. He is nothing to me. He's nothing to me, but yeah, man, if the, if the ax went through his arm, that would have been pretty funny. <laughs> that would have been pretty funny. All right. Wiz R 74 writes, I believe that the mother boxes uh, was destined to wake up sooner uh, than they did, but Superman had already arrived on earth by the time they were done recharging from the previous attempt to use them on earth. Hence uh, them staying in slumber until soup's death. Uh, maybe. Is that it? I'm going to guess that was it until soup's death. Maybe. Okay. So, I mean, that is definitely a possibility, but it's, it would be very, very coincidental that in the thousands of years, the thousands of years that the mother boxes were on earth, that it was only within those 35 years that Clark Kent had actually been on earth, that that's when they were going to wake up. But, uh Oh, uh Oh, there's a Kryptonian here. We can't mess with him. Let's pretend like we're still asleep. You know, like back when you still used to live at mom's and it was a school day, but you didn't feel like going to school and your mom would come in, try to wake you up and you're awake, but you just pretend to be asleep thinking if I pretend to be asleep long enough, my mom will stop bugging me to get up and go to school. Don't lie. You've done that. You've all done it. You liars. Um, Anyway, that maybe again, it would just seem very, very coincidental that out of the thousands of years, it happened to be in this itty bitty 35 year window that they just so happened to we're going to be recharged and waking up uh oh but there's a kryptonian here maybe but again you know what that notwithstanding the reality is i really did like the way it started the whole idea about the scream of superman the death knell if you will of superman being the thing that triggered them waking up saying the kryptonian is gone or as you know lex Luthor said in the previous movie the god is dead the dinner bell's now been rung now that Superman is gone, it's open season here. You're right. So I, I really did like the way they did that. Anyway, next up. Um, Gwilly, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, writes, Hey, John and crew, thanks for keeping me entertained throughout the pandemic. No problem. Y'all are the best. My question is, why is Warner Brothers so quick to shoot down uh, an air cut? I can't imagine they'd have to spend much on it. Uh, and it'd be nice HBO Max exclusive thoughts. I, I think they're quick to shoot it down because they should shoot down every single one. When a movie's done, the movie's done. Listen, I've said this before with extremely rare exceptions. I'm actually not a big fan of director's cuts, even on movies. I love 
Now, don't get me wrong. Like even like Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I enjoyed the director's cuts of Lord of the Rings. But when I think of Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings is the theatrical version. That's it. The movies, that's that's what came out. That was the completed movie done. You can get into this whole rabbit hole of now, which movie do we revisit? Well, they got to move forward, move forward, quit moving backwards, just move forward. And it's, it's time to get out of this whole nonsense of now go back and do this cut and go back and do this cut. It's like, for what, what's the point? What's the purpose? You know? So that's why in general, I don't get excited about director's cuts of even my favorite movies. I don't get excited about them. Uh, but that's just me. That's just my own personal kind of thought on that. And I think the reason why they're very quick to shoot it down is because why shouldn't they shoot it down? They have no interest in being in that business. That movie is done. It's in their rearview mirror. They're looking forward to the new Suicide Squad, which, by the way, by the time you're watching this, the first trailer may be out because I'm recording this on Thursday night uh, just before I watch um, before I watch uh, the new episode of Falcon and Winter Soldier uh, tomorrow morning. A brand, I think it's in the morning, a brand new first official trailer for Suicide Squad comes out. Why would they want to divide attention? Why would they want to go back to that? I, I, so I guess when you ask the question, why would they shoot it down? My question would be, why would they entertain it? Why would they entertain it? So, and why would they spend that kind of money for something that's really not going to give them a return on investment? And by the way, it, it, it's just, Again, that's just other people have different opinions when it comes to director's cuts. I know I've got a friend of mine who's still in Canada that's like, it doesn't matter if it was for the worst movie in the world. He loves director's cuts. Even if it's like the most minor of changes, loves director's cuts. And I'm sure there are a lot more people like that. For me, director's cuts aren't even, they're not real. You know, the real version is the theatrical version. With Lord of the Rings, whatever. Now, the Snyder thing that's a very unique situation. This was, this is a very, very different thing than like a director who was on the movie, had some editing debates with the thing turned out a little bit different. The Snyder thing is it, it almost feels like a horse of a different color to call the Snyder cut, a director's cut. It's really not a director's cut. It's because the circumstances were so unique. It was a very unique set of circumstances, but yeah, in general for other things like a David Ayer thing, I, what, like I said, you word it, why would they shoot it down? My question would be, why would they entertain it? it it's, it's done. It's behind them. They're moving forward. They got a new Suicide Squad coming out, and that's why they're moving with it. That's just my take on it. And this is coming from probably, you. I would probably say I was in the top 2% of critics who really enjoyed <laughs> Suicide Squad. Um, I, I was wildly, yeah, it's a hot mess of a movie. Yes. But I was also thought it was pretty wildly entertaining. Thanks to a lot of stuff that Ayer had put into it. So anyway, that's just me. All right. Vanessa G Ramos writes, Hey, John and super sexy Rob. Rob is not here today. We are beyond excited for Godzilla versus Kong. So what is your insight slash prediction? Like who is soups slash Batman in this fight? And how do you think they Martha, uh, get into a team? How do they Martha into a team? Okay, so I am very clear on this. I am very, very Team Kong. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to be one of these little pissies unless my guy wins. I'm not going to like the movie. No, no, no. It doesn't matter. Whoever Godzilla wins, great. If Kong wins, great. Whatever. As long as it's a good, fun movie and the action is great and all that kind of stuff. So I really don't care. Now, but I am firmly in Team Kong's corner. And I think in this scenario, I think Kong is Batman. Godzilla is the perennial favorite, much like Superman would have been in that fight. But I think Kong, 
with his uh, fighting prowess and skill. And he is a stylistic problem for Godzilla. Kong is a stylistic problem for Godzilla. I'm totally team Kong. Now, how will they Martha their way into? Well, it's really simple. Like Mecha Godzilla is going to show up. And they're just both going to naturally know that thing is a problem. That thing is a problem. And I don't like you, Godzilla. And Godzilla with his little dino arms. I don't like you either, Kong, with his lizard arms. I don't like you either, Kong. But that mother effer over there, that big metal thing over there, that thing's a problem. So we best deal with that. Let's go deal with that. Deal, says Kong. Deal, says Godzilla. And then they go off and they fight off Mecha Godzilla and win. And it's going to be glorious. We already know what happens. It doesn't matter. It's going to be awesome to see on the big screen. And I cannot wait. All right. Uh, next up, we've got uh, Gilly again writes. Adding on to my air cut question, there's plenty of DVDs and Blu-rays that come with director's cut included. Uh, an air cut uh, could be done in a similar fashion, except available only on HBO Max. I thought they were starved for content, picky much. But you, you like most of the time, a director's cut is honestly, in the grand scheme of things, very minor changes. Like this scene might have been included, or this what it's it's very rare that the standard director cut is uh, a full-on deviation of what the movie ended up being. Not not never, just rare. That's all rare. I really don't see. And again, why would Warner Brothers? What would be the incentive of Warner Brothers right now to draw attention to a former version of Suicide Squad when they are clearly trying to get everybody on board with moving on from that version into a new iteration? and new version of Suicide Squad. And let's let's be honest. Most people did not have the appreciation for Suicide Squad that I did. And I think most people would not care about an air cut of what I just don't think most people would care. And and hey, maybe I'm mistaken. I'm I'm only saying that cuz whenever I talked about how how entertaining I thought Snyder cut, I would get flooded with you know, people, you know, ragging on me for it, for saying that I liked it, but whatever it is, it is what it is. I was very entertained by that movie um, and probably would have been even more entertained with a more pure air uh, thing. Cause I think probably the things that I found most entertaining were probably David Ayer's contributions to it. Um, but, but yeah, I just, there's just no, it would be counterproductive to, it would be counterproductive to the direction they're trying to go in right now. At least that's how I see it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm totally wrong about that, but that's just my initial impression on that. Thanks for writing that in. All right, next up. Uh, Calvin writes in, John, I'm with you on the color of Superman. I really don't care. I myself, uh, I myself wouldn't change it, but I would really love to see a Michael B. Jordan Superman. But I really don't want to keep reading slash listening about this for the next three to four years. Uh, I just keep Cavill just to avoid the conversation. Oh, I get now. Obviously, if you're actually a studio, that's not a good reason to keep Cavill. And of course, you know, Cavill is my all time favorite Superman. Um, but that that in and of itself is not a good conversation. But I'm not going to lie to you. On top of the other reasons why I just want to see a Henry Cavill Superman, I'm open to them to doing other things, too. Like I, I'm open to them doing whatever, but obviously if it was up to me, I would make everything with Henry Cavill as Superman. Hell, I would make the James Bond movie with Henry Cavill as Superman. 
But um, yeah, just not wanting to hear people talk about for the next three to four years is probably not the right reason to go in that direction. I totally get where you're coming from on that. All right. Next up, Alan writes, hey, John, I saw an article on Variety saying that Hawkeye spinoff series entitled Echo. Yes, I heard about this, too, is in development for Disney Plus. So Echo is going to be a character that's in the upcoming Hawkeye movie. And they're already talking that they're going to do a spinoff series with this character. Her powers sound very similar to Taskmaster, and I don't know how I feel about a Hawkeye spinoff. What do you think? Hashtag John's OnlyFans account. Um, honestly, I am, I am unfamiliar. Other than having heard the name, I am unfamiliar quite a bit with the Echo character. I don't really know that much about it, and clearly I haven't seen the Hawkeye series yet, as none of us have. So right now I really don't, have much of a thought or much of an opinion about it, except to say, well, it's encouraging to know that they think they've got such a great secondary character in this upcoming Hawkeye series that they think it warrants giving them their own spinoff series. That's exciting. Other than that, right now, I really don't know much. And, um, and man, this is just one of those situations where I wish John Schnepp was here. I mean, one of many, many situations where I wish John Schnepp was here so I could just talk to him about it and get his insight on Echo and all that kind of stuff. But for now, it's a it's cool because they like the character enough to give it a spinoff. That's, that speaks well and bodes well for the Hawkeye series. But until I know more about the character, I don't have much more of an opinion beyond that, Alan. But let's let's keep our eyes on it and let's see how, uh, how that evolves. All right, next up. Uh, Heisenberg writes, one of two. Would WM, I don't know what WM is, Greenlight Justice League sequels, I guess WM you mean Warner Media, would Warner Media Greenlight Justice League sequels if Zack Snyder would make them as animated movies? I don't think Zack Snyder has any interest in making animated movies. Um, cast could come back to lend their voices. Well, that would be very expensive. Uh, financial viability compared to live action. Uh, he could inject his grand visuals as much as possible in the highest quality um, of animation possible. No rating and runtime issues. Biggest disadvantage, uh, we would be missing all of his live action visual glory. But hey, at least we would have a conclusion to his planned story arc, right? Your thoughts about this. Thanks for the show, man. The biggest, honestly... Number one, they wouldn't do it in a very advanced animation style. DC animation and Marvel animation, for that matter, are, are very low budget. Very, very low budget as far as animation goes. They, they wouldn't spend like the type of money that Pixar spent on Onward, for example, which still costs in the hundreds of millions of dollars to make those, those really advanced CGI animated movies. So I don't think they would spend that kind of money. But honestly... The biggest roadblock to that, I think, would be Zack Snyder himself. Why would Snyder come back to do that? Like, don't get me wrong. I have a feeling like if Warner Media came back to him and said, hey, we have changed our minds, which I don't think they're going to do, but we have changed our minds and we're going to put up $300 million for a Justice League 2 and give you carte blanche to do it and all that kind of stuff. That may tempt Zack Snyder. But other than that, listen, Zack Snyder's got exciting stuff ahead of him right now, right? He's got Army of the Dead, which I think is going to be awesome. He's into a genre he's very comfortable in. And on top of that live action thing, he's got an anime thing coming, like an extensive network uh, Netflix deal with it. He's got big things in front of him. He's ready to move on. 
And while I think Warner Media coming with a $300 million check and saying, let's do your Justice League 2 may tempt him. I'm not even sure he would do it then. I just, I'm just saying, I don't know. I don't know. What I feel pretty comfortable wouldn't tempt him is you want to half-ass it and make me do my vision of this in your low-budget, kind of cheaply-looking animated DC-style thing with a fraction of the budget when I could be off making other live-action films that I want to pursue? I just don't know. And I'm saying, I don't know. I don't know that that would be particularly appealing to Zack Snyder. I don't, I just, I have, I have a feeling it wouldn't be. Again, he's got some exciting stuff in front of him that he's, I believe, probably very much looking forward to doing. So I don't know why he'd be tempted to come back and do that in like a half-assed animated form. So my guess is, and it's only a guess, my guess is probably not. That's At least that's my guess. All right, next up. We got the hoser and the knob rights. Very Canadian things. Um, Hey, John and Rob. First, uh, Justice League opening view numbers being low is one thing. But how many new HBO Max subscriptions did that lead to? They they haven't said yet. Uh, That's the more telling number for HBO. Second, for Rob, uh, what is the hot toy figure on your shelf behind James Dean? And unfortunately, Rob's not here to answer that. Right now, they haven't given out those numbers. Now, I've got to assume that it's probably um, ratio-wise probably similar to what Wonder Woman 84 was. Probably similar. So it was probably, I'm going to guess probably, I don't know, 20%, maybe 20%. Because, you know, I got to feel, a lot of people who would look forward to Snyder, uh, uh, Snyder Cut are going to be comic book movie fans they're going to be dc fans they probably would have wanted hbo max to watch wonder woman 84 even though that did not turn out well um so but i don't know so my i'm gonna go around the guess i heard the wonder woman was one was around the 18 to 20 percent of his ultimate viewers uh i'm gonna guess probably that's probably the same relative number as justice but again they haven't put out official numbers yet we'll have to wait and see but, you know, with Wonder Woman, it's going to be how many of that 2.2 million were first-time subscribers versus how many of that 1.8 million were first-time subscribers. I don't think it's going to meet their expectations, though. Like, I, I don't think 1.8 million met their expectations either. Now, you'll never hear anybody at Warner Brothers admit that or anybody at HBO Max admit that. But I have a feeling that 1.8 million thing is probably lower than what they were hoping to hear. But I I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. For all we know, maybe 80% of that 1.8 million was all first-time subscribers. That would be extremely positive. So maybe that's... We're just going to have to wait to hear uh, what HBO actually... If they ever actually release those numbers, we'll have to wait and see. All right, next up. Uh, We've got Bojax writes, Hey, John. I believe the top three streamers in five years will be Disney Plus, HBO Max, and Hulu because of IP. Disney, we know. HBO Max has DC, Game of Thrones, and possibly Harry Potter IP. That's a good That's a good point. And I think Hulu, with Disney money, will use Fox IP like Aliens and Predators. But is Aliens and Predators really something that's going to make them a top three streamer? It's not like Aliens or Predators have been tearing up the box office their last number of outings, right? So I don't know if IP like Aliens and Predators is going to make them big. So this comes on the heels of a conversation that we were having about specifically five years from now, what will be the three biggest streamers? 
Now, my guess, remember, we're not talking two years from now. We're not talking three years from now. We're talking five years from now. My guess, it'll be Disney Plus, Amazon, and Apple TV Plus. Disney Plus, for obvious reasons, they've got Star Wars, they've got Marvel, they got Pixar, they got this extensive, incredible library of original IP. They're massive and huge and only getting bigger. But Amazon and Apple TV Plus, who have really just started to get into this game, they're already producing, already producing amazing content. Like you guys remember, if you've watched me for a while, when they first announced Apple TV plus and they had that big press day saying what their show lineup was going to be, I'm like, I'm not impressed. I wasn't, I was not impressed. Nothing looked particularly interesting. And then morning show is amazing for all mankind is amazing. Ted Lasso is one of the most delightful things on television. They've got Leonardo DiCaprio and Marty Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon coming. And here's the important thing, you know, and then Amazon has got the Marvel's Mrs. Maisel. They've got the boys. They, they did the big sick, which is one of my favorite comedies of the past 10 years. And, but, and they got the Lord of the Rings coming. But the thing about Amazon and Apple TV plus is that these are two of literally the richest companies in the world. Like Amazon can buy and sell Disney five times over. Apple can buy and sell Sony five to 10 times over. So they have the money. They have the infrastructure. They both make their own devices. I think five long term. I, yeah, I think that now we'll find out maybe. I mean, and I think HBO Max will probably still be the best of them, but I just don't know that they'll be as in the top three as the other ones. But I think, I don't know. We're talking, it's hard to know what's going to happen next month, let alone what's going to happen five years down the line. So yeah, but that's my guess right now. So we'll see uh, where that goes. All right, guys, there's still more questions to come, but don't worry, we'll get picked up on the John Campus show tomorrow, but that will do it for this installment of the companion videos. Guys, thank you so much for taking some time to hang out with us. I told you we had like 40 something pages. We got almost 50, a little over 15 pages into it. Still have a long way to go, but we will get caught up by the weekend. We will get caught up. We will get caught up. Anyway, guys, that will do it for me for now. Thanks for being here. Special thank you to all you guys who sent in those questions because number one, you gave us great fun things to talk about, but number two, you supported this channel as you did it. And all of us here are extremely grateful for that support that you guys give. All right, guys, don't forget, do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, take care of the people around you. Also, don't forget, on top of the John Campus show tomorrow at 3 p.m. tomorrow afternoon, we're going to be doing our weekly Falcon and Winter Soldier open spoiler discussion for episode two that I'm going to go watch in about an hour and a half here. Okay, guys, that'll do it for me for now. Thanks a lot for being here. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.